Focus on Headline. Now let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio, we have our reporters Handan and Iji Sun. Guys, welcome back. Hello. Good evening. All right, so uh, it was a very, very busy uh, morning this <laughs> today for me. <laughs> Hectic uh, for the news team. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it really was. Uh, just kind of preparing for the uh, 8 o'clock news. A lot was happening. First and foremost, uh, North Korea, uh, with Joe Biden, of course, visiting not just uh, South Korea, but also Japan. Uh, immediately after he left for the United States, North Korea having launched multiple ballistic missiles. Uh, for this, uh, Chisan, let's get some details on this, uh, the latest uh, provocation from uh, North Korea. Yeah, so today, North Korea launched three ballistic missiles towards the sea off its east coast as President Biden's trip to the region came to an end. It was North Korea's 17th missile firings this year. North Korea's last missile test occurred hours after the country on May 12th acknowledged its COVID-19 outbreak on honest soil. The missiles were launched from Sunan near Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea, at 6 a.m., 6.37, and 6.42. South Korea Korean officials have warned in recent weeks that North was ready to conduct either a nuclear test or an intercontinental ballistic missile test. Also, hours before the North Korea's missile launches, U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price told reporters in Washington that North Korea may be on the verge of a major weapons test. He said, our concern for another potential provocation, be it an ICBM launch, be a potential seventh nuclear weapons test, our concern has not abated in any way. The last time North Korea conducted an ICBM test was on March 24th. North Korea voluntarily declared a moratorium on testing ICBMs and nuclear weapons in 2018. The missile launches on Wednesday are North Korea's sign of strong willingness to reinitiate a new cycle of raised tensions on the Korean peninsula. The launches were also serve as North Korea's first public reaction to President Biden's trip to the region, sitting with the leaders of South Korea and Japan. During his visit, President Biden promised to enhance various measures, including joint military exercises, to deter North Korea's nuclear and missile threat that has been on the rise. In a meeting with South Korea's newest President Yoon Suk-yeol in Seoul last Saturday, President Biden said that the United States would strengthen the alliance and increase deterrence in the face of the North Korean threat. Biden and Yoon both agreed on an announced that they will explore ways to expand joint military exercises. The joint military exercises were canceled or scaled down under former Presidents Moon Jae-in and Donald Trump. Uh, even before he was sworn into office, Yoon Suk-yeol has been highly skeptical of North Korea. He said that the previous administration, the Moon administration's plan to deter North Korea from developing its nuclear weapon program uh, through dialogue and reconciliation has failed. When Yoon suk was sworn into office on May 10th, he announced a plan to improve the quality of North Korean residents by improving the nation's economy. But he also said that those promises and plans will only be kept, quote, if North Korea genuinely embarks on a process to complete denuclearization, unquote. The missile test today, according to pundits, indicates that North Korea is not interested in engaging in any of the nuclear disarmament talks or negotiations 
negotiations and will not be for a while. Yeah, I think uh, Victor Cha earlier this week, uh, what he said during a uh, forum was that you know North Korea is probably going to be testing some kind of missile uh, in the uh, the Memorial Day weekend, right over in the United States. But it actually came a lot earlier. Uh, than expected. But, uh, you know, we saw one, we heard the news, I remember because I was covering this uh, on, on the 8 o'clock news uh, this morning, and it was one, and then I wrote my headlines, and then a second one came out, switch, <laughs> new headlines, and then I'm getting ready to go downstairs to the studio, and then another missile uh, test. So three missile tests on a single day here. Uh, but of course, South Korea's response uh, to the missile launches launched stronger than usual here. So, Tana, what exactly did President Yoon Sagir say? SG, we've seen so many missile launches by North Korea, not just this year, but over so many years in the past, yeah, right? Yeah. And uh, President Yoon's response was certainly stronger than usual compared to past presidents of South Korea. After presiding over his first National Security Council meeting, he ordered the implementation of practical measures to beef up defense against North Korea, such as enhancing the activation capability of South Korea-U.S. extended deterrence and bolstering South Korea-U.S. joint defense posture. As you know, the leaders of the two countries reaffirmed the U.S. extended deterrence commitment to South Korea using the full range of U.S. defense capabilities, including nuclear, conventional, and missile defense capabilities. The two presidents also agreed to reactivate the high-level extended deterrence strategy and consultation group, or EDSCG, at the earliest date, where the use of U.S. strategic assets will also be discussed. And also, in a rare move, the government separately issued a statement strongly condemning the missile launch. The statement labeled North Korea's missile launch as an illegal behavior that flatly violates the UN Security Council resolutions and as a serious provocation that poses threat to the Korean Peninsula and global security. The statement added that North Korea's continued provocations will result in a stronger and more swift South Korea-U.S. joint deterrence and will only further isolate the Hermit Kingdom. And this was echoed by Foreign Minister Pak Jin and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken during their phone talks held on Wednesday. According to the Foreign Ministry, the two sides particularly emphasized that it's regrettable how North Korea is using its major financial resources on nuclear and missile developments when its people are suffering even more from the spread of COVID-19. They also agreed on the need for a stern global response, vowing cooperation and swift adoption of new North Korea sanctions at the U, uh, United Nations Security Council. Although chances look slim due to veto-wielding members Russia and China, yeah, yeah. Washington has been pushing for new sanctions that include slashing North Korea-bound crude and refined oil exports by half. Foreign Minister Park is reportedly preparing his trip to Washington for talks with Blinken on follow-up measures sometime next month. Again, I mean, we got some uh, strong remarks from the South Korean side under the new administration, but words are words. But uh, amid the heightening tensions were palpable uh, as counter-missiles were fired from the South Korean side, which I think that spoke louder right. uh, than mm -hmm. the words itself. So tell, tell us more about this. South Korea and the U.S. jointly fired two missiles into the East Sea today in response to North Korea's suspected ICBM launch. According to Seoul's Joint Chiefs of Staff, they fired South Korea's Hyunmu-2 missile and a surface-to-surface -surface missile from the U.S. Army Tactical Missile System, demonstrating the missile's speed and accuracy to deter North Korea's further missile provocations. South Korea also conducted Air Force training called the Elephant 
walk involving dozens of warplanes, including the F-35A stealth fighters. The JCS said these demonstrations showed that South Korea is determined to respond firmly to any North Korea provocations and that it has the ability and readiness to precisely strike the targets with overwhelming power. All right, so we have this issue with uh, North Korea, but uh, also uh, from other neighbors in the region as well. It's been a very uh, busy uh, 24 hours here on the Korean Peninsula. There were some actions shown by China and Russia, which caught... I can't say it was caught it caught the world by surprise, uh, but nevertheless, it is a little bit concerning here. So, Chisun, let's, let's talk about this. Yesterday, on Tuesday, May 24th, multiple Russian and Chinese warplanes entered South Korea's air defense identification zone, also known as Cuddy's, without notice. As a response, South Korea's Joint Chief of Staff said that the South Korean Air Force fighters were deployed to the scene. The air defense zone is not territorial airspace, but it's delineated to call on foreign planes to identify themselves to prevent accidental crashes. This entry of the warplanes happened exactly on the last day of U.S. President Joe Biden's five-day visit to South Korea and Japan. South Korea's Joint Chief of Staff said that two Chinese and four Russian warplanes entered the Cadiz but did not violate South Korea's territorial air. He wrote and sent a text message to reporters that goes, and I quote, Prior to their entry into the Cadiz, the military deployed Air Force fighters to conduct tactical steps in preparation against potential accidental situations, unquote. At 7.56 a.m., two Chinese H-6 bombers entered the Cadiz from an area 160. 26 kilometers northwest of Iodo, a submerged rock south of Jeju-do Island. They moved toward the East Sea and exited the zone at around 9.33 a.m. Later, the two Chinese warplanes joined four Russian warplanes, including the two Tu-95 bombers and crossed into the Cadiz together at 9.58 a.m. Then they both left the zone about 15 minutes later at 10.15 a.m. And that was not the end of it. At around 3.40 p.m., four Chinese and two Russian military aircraft were spotted flying in an area some 267 kilometers southeast of Iodo outside the Cadiz. As a response, Saul's military deployed F-15K and KF-16 fighter jets to the area. Again, this appears to have happened at a time when U.S. President Joe Biden is in the middle of Asia tour. So this entry also coincides, uh, coincides with the time when Beijing and Moscow held their first joint drill since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You know, remember we talking about this uh, before, even before uh, the Ukraine crisis and even before all of this happened, that there's teams forming and, you know, China and Russia are on one team and it's, you know, the rest of the world. Uh, the reason why I said it wasn't surprising, again, we saw North Korea, what he, they did. I, I think... North Korea wasn't going to be reckless enough to test fire ballistic missiles while Biden was in Korea or in the region. I mean, they did it as soon as he left, right? Mm. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, China and Russia, they have some beef with the United States as well. And so this, this is like the least they can do without having to cause too much mm. uh, problems. But I want to kind of talk about, uh, you know, President Yoon's uh, response and the administration's response to the latest uh, provocation from North Korea, not to mention the kind of North Korea policy that we've seen so far from 
the administration at? Let's start off with you, Tan. Uh, before I get to the answer, there's one thing that I forgot to yeah. uh, tell you. During a briefing held in Yongsan this afternoon, the presidential office said North Korea's seventh nuclear test is expected as preparations have been detected, such as testing the operation of a nuclear detonator at the Pungeri nuclear test site and other places as well. Uh, Kim Tae-hyo, the first deputy director of the National Security Office, said this doesn't mean that North Korea will conduct its seventh test in a day or two. But it's very possible that it may forge ahead with the test any time after that. He added uh, North Korea's final test of scale and performance of its nuclear test is imminent. And uh, getting yeah. back to the question, um, you know, it's really hard to tell what will happen in the end, what the end game mm. will be if uh, President Yoon Song-yeo just forges ahead with his hardline North Korea policy and if North Korea continues to ramp up its level of provocations. But what we do know is what happened in the past. You know, as a South Korean citizen and as a journalist, I've been very closely monitoring and examining uh, the patterns of North Korea, uh, depending on the South Korean government, who who takes power, the liberal or the conservative. And my conclusion is that what we do know for sure is North Korea will never, ever give up its nuclear no. and missile uh, development program. And this has become even clearer in recent months amid the widening drift between the U.S. and China and Russia. China and Russia, the veto-building members at the UNSC, will never, um, it, it, it will always back North Korea. And North Korea knows that. Uh, and so... Perhaps it's about time that we take, uh, a, take a different turn and try out policies, the hardline policies that we haven't tried in the past five years well, and I see how things go. I can't agree more because we tried everything. Mm -hmm. We tried dialogue. We tried peace talks. We tried mm, negotiations. I wouldn't say everything, though. Mm. I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say everything. But go ahead. Well, but the only one thing that we didn't try is to show a very hard response like this, like President Yoon did. So I tried to think of an analogy, and I guess a, a good analogy would be two classmates in the same classroom. And one of them is kind of spoiled. They want everything. They show a little bit aggressive side. And everyone just gives in to that, to that classmate. Mm. And if that keeps on happening, it's going to reinforce that kind of behavior. And I think we, uh, we need to just drift away from that pattern and show a little bit more strong side from the South. But is that going to get North Korea to come to the negotiation table and go, listen, I don't want to have, we don't want to have this nuclear weapons anymore. It's not. <laughs> it's not. You know, but there is one thing that I want to mention, especially for our foreign listeners who may be wondering, oh my God, is there going to be a war on the Korean peninsula while there's a war going on in Ukraine as well? Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. my conclusion for you, uh, and this is not just coming from me, this has been proved and analyzed by numerous top North Korea experts in South Korea as well as across the, uh, across the globe that the possibility of a full-fledged war breaking out on the Korean Peninsula is slim to none. Yeah, it's it's yeah. close to zero. So yeah. rest assured, uh, there will be no war on the Korean Peninsula because that would be the very last thing North Korea would want, which is exactly the reason why it's never giving up on its nuclear and missile development programs, because the only thing that it wants is its regime survival and its own security. Which is why, to be honest with you, uh, when President Yoon Sagyar talked about, uh, you know, preemptive strikes, right, that, that, that scared me, right? Because I'd never thought ever in the uh, 13 years that I lived here in Korea that there was ever going 
going to be a war, right? I mean, I still kind of believe you're right. There's slim to none. But I think if there is a preemptive strike from South Korea to North Korea, there is definitely going to be a war, right? So that, that's that's why the whole idea of preemptive strike is a little bit concerning. Now, when Chizun said we tried everything, the reason why I kind of cut you off, uh, and I apologize for that, and uh, is because there's one thing that wasn't done, and that was sanctions relief, right? And then we, I think, Tan, you and I, we talked about this before. Right now, you know, the best chance that uh, I guess the world had in denuclearizing North Korea was a couple years back, okay, during the, the Trump moon era. Uh, I think the one thing that really screwed everything up, I think the, the part of North Korea, North Korea, there was one time where they th- thought, you know what, if everything goes well, we could potentially give up our nuclear weapons. But John Bolton. Uh, oh, I remember that name. <laughs> John Bolton. Uh, he said something that I think just ruined everything, which includes the Hanoi summit. What he said was he mentioned the Libyan model. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay, the Libyan model, we saw what happened with Muhammad Gaddafi, right? He was like the dictator of Libya, and then he decided that he was going to mm-hmm. give up his nuclear weapon. As soon as he gave up his nuclear weapons, boom, 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 right? And then, you know, he's gone power. He was eventually... Uh, ousted by his own people, as in like the citizens of uh, Libya, that, you know, ruined everything. I I think that's why Kim Jong-un said, okay, never, ever are we going to give up these nuclear weapons until there's like a full sanctions. And then the Russia invasion of Ukraine. I think that was kind of the seal that that sealed everything. They North Korea learned from Russia that because Russia has so much nuclear weapons, that's the reason why the West cannot attack them. And so I don't think now with all that happened with Russia and Ukraine, North Korea is never going to give up the nuclear weapons, I think, in the near future. It's unfortunate. But all of these things that happened. Uh, and so you're right. Is now hardline stance. Is that the right way to go? Are we ever going to see peace on the Korean Peninsula? Are we going to ever see denuclearization of North Korea? So far, I think right now everything looks pretty great. You know, I totally agree with you because um, sanctions relief is something that we haven't tried in recent years. And like I said, North Korea will never, ever give up its nuclear missile development programs because it is it's key to its regime yeah, survival, yeah. the only thing it wants. So yeah. I think... President, uh, the UN administration's North Korea policy should start from there, from the precondition, with the precondition that North Korea will never give up its nuclear program. Then whether we slap more sanctions or not, whether we relieve sanctions or not, mm-hmm. North Korea will carry on with its nuclear program no matter what. Then why not give it a chance? Give a chance at sanctions relief and see how the talks will go. Yeah, exactly. And, and that was the thing, right? The snapback, right? As soon as they d- decide they're not going to keep their promise of uh, getting rid of their nuclear weapons. I mean, you can slap those sanctions right back in place. Anytime. Anytime, right? right? And so that's the thing. But I think the U.S. right now, they're they're very firm on the idea of just no sanctions relief unless denuclearization first. So it's just a back and forth right now. And that's the reason why we're just not seeing any kind of, uh, you know, movement uh, on the Korean Peninsula. It really is unfortunate right now. And all the while, you know, North Korean citizens are the ones that are suffering from all this. Uh, we're going to move on to the economic front this time. South Korea's Tang conglomerates uh, have a, renounced record-breaking investment plans with the launch of a new government that promised an economy led by the private sector. Todd, who is investing in what and how much are we exactly talking about here? Well, in what is widely seen as a welcoming response to the Yoon administration's shift to various company-friendly policies, South Korea's big-name conglomerates have announced record levels of investment plans to enhance their global competitiveness in diverse promising industries. Tech giant Samsung Electronics has announced its new investment plan for the next five years, uh, in which it'll invest 450 trillion won, uh, or some $350 billion, in 
promising industries, including semiconductors and bioscience. This new five-year investment plan is, is an increase of 40% from its previous plan. Roughly 80% of the money is expected to be spent in the field of R&D and building new facilities. Samsung said that if the company's foundry business were to become the world's number one player, it would reap enough profits to create a conglomerate even bigger than Samsung Electronics. Uh, as you know, Samsung Electronics currently ranks second in the foundry business in the world after Taiwan's TSMC. The company added it plans to hire 80,000 new employees and seize the investment leading to the creation of more than a million jobs. Hyundai Motor Group also announced ambitious plans to invest nearly $50 billion to create a domestic hub for its next-generation businesses. The auto giant plans to spend some $13 billion to secure global competitiveness, a competitive edge in electric and eco-friendly cars. Also, it has allocated roughly $7 billion for the development of robotics, uh, urban air mobility, and artificial intelligence. Uh, Hanwha Group announced that it'll invest 37.6 trillion won in industries such as energy and carbon neutrality and hire more than 20,000 new workers in Korea. Lotte Group has decided to invest 37 trillion won over the next five years in health and mobility, retail, tourism and chemicals. Big stuff here. Uh, speaking of future growth spurt, uh, batteries now, of course, uh, the big thing, right? And, and uh, now that more people are going to be shifting over to EVs now, uh, all the more importance on these uh, vehicle uh, batteries. But uh, I mean, it will it be it will be a necessity again uh, in developing UAM other technologies now securing stable lithium ion supply. Therefore, uh, very very important here. Uh, we do have some news on this front from uh, Samsung SDI along with another. Uh, overseas uh, corporation uh, company. Uh, Chison, let's get more on this. So this morning, Samsung SDI, a battery-making company under Samsung Group in South Korea, made a major announcement. Samsung SDI already has multiple foreign operations in China, Hungary, Malaysia, and Vietnam, and it runs a battery pack assembly line in the U.S. state of Michigan. But this morning, it said that it will invest more than 2.5 billion U.S. dollars with the multinational automaker Solantis NV and their first joint electric vehicle battery plant in Indiana, a Midwestern state in the U.S. Solantis, the Chrysler parent, will own 49% and Samsung SDI 51% stake in the 2.5 billion U.S. dollar joint venture company that they set up. And Samsung SDI is expecting its investment to increase to as much as 1.57 billion U.S. dollars in the long term. Samsung SDI also said that the two companies may increase their investment in this project to up to 3.1 billion U.S. dollars. On Tuesday, U.S. time, the two companies, Samsung SDI and Slantis signed a contract in Kokomo, Indiana. Uh, they aimed to start the plant by the fourth quarter of 2025. The construction will start later this year, with the production operations beginning in the fourth quarter of 2025. Slantis assembly lines in the North America produces lithium-ion battery cells and modules used for the electric vehicles, and the new plant in Indiana will supply them. The first target is to begin operations in 2025 with the, with the initial annual production capacity of 23 gigawatt hours and 
plans to increase the production capacity to 33 gigawatt hours in the following years. Samsung SDI recently launched latest premium technology, and that technology will be applied to manufacture electric vehicle battery cells and models. The two companies agreed in October to form a joint venture to build what would be the first U.S. battery cell plant for the South Korean battery maker. Samsung SDI has foreign operations, like I said, in multiple countries, and this will be the next plant that they will be building. All right, big stuff. Again, I mean, we've been talking about all these plants uh, being set up in the U.S. states. Uh, what was it? The, the other one we were talking about was Georgia, right? Uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, Bank of Korea, another thing that we need to look uh, carefully at uh, tomorrow. Uh, the monetary policy meeting that's going to be held, held tomorrow. Uh, and of course, amid the worsening inflationary pressure and amid a possible U.S. rate hike, the central bank is largely expected to raise its key interest rate. Uh, of course, uh, the big question is how much. Uh, Tom, let's get some analysis on this. Right. The Bank of Korea is expected to raise its benchmark interest rate by another 0.25 percentage points during tomorrow's meeting and sharply raise its consumer price growth forecast for this year to the 4 percent range. The central bank had raised interest rate by 0.25 percentage points last month, and it is quite rare to raise the rate for two straight months. But experts say the rate hike is inevitable considering the rapidly rising inflationary pressure and the accelerated pace of monetary tightening in the U.S. If the rate is raised again, it would mark the first back-to-back -back rate hike in 14 years and nine months. Experts analyze that additional rate hike in just a month, which is very likely, means that the inflationary pressure is just very serious. The consumer price index last month jumped 4.8% uh, on year due to a surge in global energy prices and global supply chain bottleneck. It's the highest level in 13 years and six months. The central bank also is expected to raise its consumer price growth forecast for this year from the current 3.1% to the 4% range. The last time we saw a 4% range growth forecast in inflation was in 2011, and it's likely that we'll see it again for the first time in over a decade tomorrow. Economists say the rise will come amid soaring prices of raw materials and domestic service prices. And with this, Korea's real GDP growth rate for this year is highly likely to be lowered from the current 3% to the 2% range. The U.S. Fed Reserve, Federal Reserve's once-in-a-generation rate hike is another huge factor impacting the BOK's decision. The Fed's benchmark interest rate was raised by 0.5 percentage points to a target rate range of between 0.75% and 1%. The hike is the largest since 2000, and experts are predicting several more of such dramatic rate hikes in the U.S. this year. And this leaves little room for the BOK, because if the U.S. base rate rises higher than Korea's, it would trigger an outflow of foreign funds and a sharp rise in the $1 exchange rate, further worsening inflation in the country. That's right. And we did see uh, the greenback a lot stronger than the Korean one right now. So again, uh, something to watch uh, tomorrow. We'll give, give you our listeners uh, some updates on that and our Thursday's edition of the program. Uh, as we always do, uh, let's kind of wrap things up with uh, the latest on the COVID-19 updates here. Again, I mean, we are seeing numbers uh, going down uh, quite a bit, but personally for me, it's still concerning because it's in the the 20,000 range for quite a bit. Uh, Jason, let's get some details. 
So it's been 856 days after COVID-19 was first reported in Korea in January 2020. South Korea has reported 23,956 new cases of COVID-19 on Wednesday, bringing the accumulated number of cases pa- uh, down uh, past the 18 million mark. Uh, the figure marks a 16-week low figure for a Wednesday. 237 critically ill cases and 23 deaths were reported, and that makes that marks the seventh consecutive week with critically ill cases on the 200 range. There were 21 imported cases. 5,200 new cases were added in Gyeonggi-do province, while 3,586 were reported in the Seoul metropolitan area. The hospital bed occupancy rate for seriously ill patients is slightly over 16 percent, while 140,055 are being treated at home. You know what's the craziest thing out of all this? I don't know if you just saw me. I just uh, whipped out a, a calculator to do some uh, quick uh, calculation. 18 million cases, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that means more than a third of Koreans, uh, or I should say Koreans, it, it, more mm-hmm. than a third of people living in Korea. Mm-hmm. More than one in every three Koreans yeah. have COVID. And uh, the, the reason why this is crazy is because I remember at like uh, the early stage, and I, I shouldn't say the early, like a year after COVID-19 broke out, mm-hmm. I, I did the same calculation right and I said all right because I was always concerned whether or not I was going to get COVID Mm -hmm. Uh, I did eventually get COVID but at the time I remember the number was something like one out of every uh, like 2,000 people were getting COVID right and I said, all right, mm. that, that's not bad. I was like, every, <laughs> and one out of every 2,000, that's not bad. I could, I could, I could be, you know, beat that odd, right? Mm. But one out of more than one out of three people, that is a very, very uh, you know, big number that we're looking at right now. And she's, I believe you're one of the few people that never got COVID. Yes, it's really weird because both of my parents got it. Both of my grandparents got it. And I'm the only one who didn't really get it. And oh. I still live with my parents. So maybe you have super immunity. <laughs> maybe, you maybe. Know, you know, the uh, the number, the actual number may even be higher than the yep, official figure. Absolutely. Because these days I notice so many people, you know, even with symptoms of COVID just going, ah, you know, who cares? I'm not going to get a PCR test. Yeah. I'll just, you know, the symptoms are mild. I'll just, you know, just go go run to the nearest pharmacy and just take some pills and get a good sleep and mm-hmm. I'll I'll be over with it. That's, also, that's how people are reacting these days. Also, yeah. you don't really have a, a proper treatment to treat COVID. You just have to take cold, cold pills, right? So if you are, if that's it, then why get tested? Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's a lot of people, although, uh, you know, I went to the uh, my local clinic today because you can hear, I, I don't know if you hear from my voice right now, um, but, uh, my voice is a little bit hoarse. I, I have like a throat cold or something like that. Didn't uh, notice at all. I, I mean, I feel it, right? Mm. Like I am coughing a little mm. bit. But uh, I went to the doctor today. And the first thing he asked was like, do you have a fever? Do you have body aches? Do you think it's COVID? And I said, I mean, I've had COVID already. And this is definitely not COVID. I mean, how would you know if the doctor asks <laughs> you, do you think it's COVID? <laughs> exactly. No, well, my thing, the reason why I said no is because, again, because I had COVID already. Mm-hmm. And unless it's like I got BA4 or BA5, I think there's a lot of people like that right now. They're, they're just the getting doctor, reinfected. Huh? You, you, can, uh, you could actually get reinfected with the BA4 and with BA5. The yeah, yeah. But, I, you know, it's not rampant right now here in the country. So I'm pretty unlikely that I have it. But I think there's a lot of people who basically they go through very mild symptoms of Omicron. Mm-hmm. And even though it is uh, COVID, they just think it's, you know, cold. They go to a local clinic and just get some medicine. And yeah. that's that. So you're absolutely right, Town. I don't, I don't think the numbers are really the true numbers here. Uh, but speaking of... 
numbers that we don't think are actual numbers, and it could be a lot higher. North Korea, uh, they've reported over 115,000 new suspected COVID-19 cases Wednesday. Uh, total number of fever cases surpassing 3 million there. Town, let's get the latest. So North Korea added more than 115,970 people showing high fever on Tuesday, with the total number of fever cases since late April standing at more than 3 million. According to the Korean Central News Agency, the death toll remained the same at 68, as the North claimed to have no additional deaths reported for the second consecutive day. At least 323,330 are under COVID treatment. The daily fever tally, and we're we're continuing to call this uh, the fever case or the fever tally, because this is what the North Korea is going with, has gradually dropped in recent days with new cases staying below 200,000 for the fourth consecutive day after peaking at over 393,000 last week. Officials at the ruling Workers' Party, including members of the Presidium of the Political Bureau and secretaries of the Central Committee, inspected local hospitals and pharmacies, while central-level hospitals have introduced a round-the-clock telemedicine service system to provide timely assistance to local hospitals, according to the KCNA. The North is also carrying out a publicity campaign to raise public awareness about the Omicron virus to help people deeply understand various scientific treatment methods to be applied uh, to curing patients of different ages and constitutions. North Korea reported its first COVID-19 case on May 12th, earlier this month, after claiming to be coronavirus-free for over two years uh, and implemented a nationwide lockdown as it declared a shift to the, quote, maximum emergency virus control system. Yeah, uh, again, I'm not sure. The the red flag, and I said this yesterday on the show, the red flag is the fact that they're still calling this, uh, you know, fever cases, right, which means that they're Mm -hmm. just not testing them properly. They don't have the technology or the the number Mm -hmm. of uh, testing kits uh, to actually figure out. And I feel like they're not really checking everybody. This could be just centered on Pyongyang alone. And uh, what about some of the other cities? What about some of the other provinces, right? And it really is uh, concerning. And and I heard, I believe there was an article earlier uh, today that there might be a massive outbreak in the military mm-hmm. uh, in North Korea. And we mm-hmm. saw how, you know, quickly it can spread amongst the barracks, right? So something to look carefully as well. Guys, as always, thank you very much uh, for your reports and your insights on some of these issues. Please stay safe and we'll see you guys again next week. Thank you. Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.